predictability is another key area. Clients want predictability and costs even more than they want to push down costs. They want to know uh, what they're going to be paying and, and I have a sense of that down the line. Welcome to The Law in Black and White, a podcast featuring Jonathan Greenblatt and myself, Brian Parker. We're the co-founders of Legal Innovators, an alternative legal service provider. We've been friends for over 25 years. We're both lawyers with lots of opinions. In this podcast, we will look at current events, the business of law, innovation, and diversity in the legal industry. Occasionally, we'll even talk about sports. As the name of our show suggests, we recognize that there may be aspects of the law that require our thinking to go beyond just the black and white of the law. We share what we know, what we've learned, and what we're still learning. This year, Law.com has been focused on Alternative Legal Service Providers, ALSPs, and the new law through their special series, Breaking Tradition, How New Law is Challenging Big Law. This series looks at how clients adapt the way they source and purchase legal services, as well as competition and collaboration among new and traditional providers. The goal is to bring clarity around who those legal alternative providers are, what they're offering, who they are representing, where they get their talent, and what piece of the market they have said they could attain. As an ALSP, or a new law provider, we're excited to talk about how ALSPs came to be, where they are now, where they're going. But rather than talk to you about our services, we thought it would be best and more informative to talk to an expert who's been covering change and innovation in the legal services market for years, Dan Packle. Dan, we're thrilled to have you on the podcast. Thank you for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Well, let's get after it. We've been reading a lot of your writing and your insights are interesting and see if we can expand those a little bit uh, for, for our audience. So you've been reporting on innovation and change in the legal services market for a while. And you've been writing about the change that you've seen in this, in this market. I wonder if you could just you know, tell us, you know, what, what you've seen and, and maybe what was the impetus for the rise of uh, ALSPs or the alternative legal service providers? Absolutely. I've been specifically on the innovation beat for about two years. And certainly in that period of time, there's only been growth in the sector of uh, alternative legal service providers. But really the impetus here uh, is from the, the client side, the fact that the clients have been dissatisfied with the primarily on the the cost of getting legal services and that's provided an opportunity for entrepreneurs to step into the breach and find a way to deliver things uh, more cheaply but one of the most interesting trends that we're seeing more recently is that uh, even the law firms who uh, have been essentially prompting uh, the the rise of uh, these outsiders just because of the, the traditional business model has been so expensive for many clients, uh, you're finding law firms getting in the game too and, and launching uh, their own uh, alternative legal service providers, uh, which is ironic because uh, so many of these providers initially uh, popped up in opposition to traditional firms. You know, it's interesting you say that, Dan. Some might say that innovation and, and the legal market is an oxymoron combination. But you've pointed out that clients are driving law firms to change. 
what do you see happening? What are law firms doing in this market? You mentioned that they're moving into it themselves. In what ways? Uh, a growing number of law firms are launching their own units uh, to handle things like uh, contract management on a uh, more efficient scale. Or, I mean, I guess the the ones the units have been around the longest are e-discovery uh, subsidiaries, but also firms when they're under pressure. Uh, they are recognizing that it also makes sense to partner with outside ALSPs and go to market directly to clients uh, with these partners in tow. Not everyone's doing this. I think it's really the minority of firms that are doing it, but uh, firms that recognize that they need to do things differently or are find themselves under under pressure to do things differently. But no, lawyers are indeed risk averse. If, the, if they're staying busy and the fees are coming in, uh, they're not going to change, but there is significantly more pressure in the marketplace. Yeah, I, you you talked about you know e-discovery kind of being the first you know the first wave. As we think about other services that are going to be you know the the next generation, if you will, coming from ALSPs and the new law providers, do you see a common tipping point that will determine you know whether clients continue to use or increase their utilization? Will it only be cost, or are there other other factors at play? It's cost and it's quality. I think that. Cost savings and predictability is another key area. Clients want predictability and costs even more than they want to uh, to push down costs. They want to know uh, what they're going to be paying and, and have a sense of that down the line. So if ALSPs can continue to deliver cost-efficient, predictable services and buyers of legal services are assured of quality or and, and see that they're getting quality, their market share is only going to continue to grow. Yeah, I wonder if I could follow up on that a, a little bit. You know, we'd love to figure out um, how the firms get more and more comfortable. It's like a chicken and the egg, right? You got to try it or pilot it or mm -hmm. somehow walk down that field to, to, to figure out if you're going to get comfortable. And in, in that answer, I wonder if you could expand a little bit on what you mean by predictable. Uh, the, just the sense that uh, no one wants to get hit by a massive legal bill in any given month. They, you, buyers want to know, they want to be able to budget and have a, a strong sense of sticking on budgets. They don't want any surprises. And by relying on an alternative provider who can leverage more technology or contract attorneys and have a, a, a better sense of how the, the process works rather than just going on the fly, uh, there's the idea that they can, can keep billing more stable and more predictable. And, and what about just to flip back to the comfort question, where, where does that comfort come in? I mean, are they watching their peers and then they're going to, you know, kind of follow along once it's been proven? Are they doing pilots? What, what gets that comfort that you're talking about? I think you just do it on a matter by matter basis and uh, take smaller chunks. Uh, and then if you, I mean, obviously you're not going to bet the house on a, uh, on a new provider, but you, you can find opportunities to, to pilot it out on a smaller basis. And if it works, if you're comfortable, then uh, increase the uh, the share of, of work that you're doing on this basis. Let me let me follow up on that for a second, Dan, because I think what you're trying to address there is what makes an ALSP or alternative legal service provider successful. Um, from what you've seen, those that have done well, those that haven't done well, what what's the distinguisher? 
You know, I thought when I was preparing for this, I thought about something that Connie Brenton uh, has said in the past. She's the senior director of legal operations at NetApp, uh, and they're really a pioneer in uh, working with alternative providers. And the quote that she's put out there in the past is, "It's really a combination of people, process, and technology." And the the winners here really have those going, and they are ultimately flexible enough to use the right resources at the right price for the right work. And, and I think the key to it is having those resources and just being flexible about them and being able to meet the client scenarios as they arise. Do you find that um, the market is receptive to people who don't fit in a box they're used to, like a traditional contract attorney firm or, or a legal technology software firm? Because as you say, there's a spectrum of those things that often come into play. You know, I think that buyers are getting accustomed to new arrangements and new combinations and some of the new players that you're seeing are really combining a number of these existing uh, elements. So there's the LSPs that aren't just contract attorneys or aren't just uh, technology, but combining contract attorneys with more innovative technology as well as process management abilities. One of the things that uh, came up in our industry, um, you know, really over the summer with the, the social unrest was how does the legal industry think about diversity and inclusion and how do you better drive systemic change and that sort of thing? Um, I, I wonder, you know, sort of what you've seen on that generally and are there these new models, the ALSPs or, or new law firms that are playing a role there, or should they be playing a role there? You're seeing it in the more established and largest uh, and longstanding ALSPs. Elevate uh, is one of the, the bigger names in the, the field. They have uh, examined their own efforts on diversity. Uh, another big name, Axiom, uh, they are even participating in the uh, Mansfield uh, role certification process, which doesn't necessarily, there's not a category yet for ALSPs, but they've joined a number of corporate law departments in having their own processes for hiring of diverse uh, employees certified. And so many others in the field are smaller startups. Yeah, they haven't necessarily invested the time and attention uh, to diversity and inclusion. I, I hope over time uh, you do see it uh, more from everyone. I mean, there's obviously a moral case for this, but these companies are trying to get, uh, I mean, they're serving as vendors for both corporate America, uh, who has made this a clear priority, as well as law firms. While law firms are not doing a, as good of a job as they should in promoting diversity and inclusion in the, in the ranks, they are aware of it as a priority. So it's something that law firms certainly look to, both internally and when they uh, determine who they're pairing with. Um, you talked about the pressure that law firms are from, under from their clients to reduce costs. We read about the pressure that corporate legal departments are putting law firms under to make more of an impact on D&I. Do you see that as well? And if so, are they combining to try to tackle the problem together in some way? Between corporate legal departments and law firms? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, they uh, law firms are are under pressure. They recognize it. Uh, they are in discussions with corporate America. Uh, the, the 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 proof is in the pudding. We haven't seen it fully. Uh, there's much more work that needs to get done. But at the very least, so there's an awareness that firms need to do better. 
and hopefully that will continue to translate into improved outcomes. So the post-COVID-19 world, if you can put your crystal ball in front of your uh, in front of your desk for a second, you know we like to talk about the fact that we're about cost savings, we're about diversity, and we're about to some extent remote working. And we think that at least some of the lessons that have come out of this COVID environment play right into those three pillars, if you will. But where do you see the legal market going, and where do you see the role of ALSPs going? post-COVID, or is it too soon to tell? No, I think this is an ideal opportunity for ALSPs. Look, we are all sitting at home right now. Uh, clients are comfortable with work getting done in different ways than uh, used to get done. They've pivoted to a remote workforce. Uh, they can get comfortable with attorneys that they are not in physical contact with and other ways of getting work done. I mean, and obviously the economic uncertainty that we first ran into in March and April. Uh, the economy improved over the summer months, but uh, things are starting to look grim again right now. Buyers of legal services are under tremendous pressure for continued cost savings and efficiency. Uh, that's something that's only going to drive them looking forward uh, for alternatives. And uh, if buyers of legal services are forced to do things differently, get comfortable with it, then uh, and they're happy, then uh, there's no reason not to stick with doing things differently. And this is a real opportunity for alternative providers to shine. Yeah, I think as, as maybe as we wrap up this section, I wanted to go back to something you said before about e-discovery kind of being the first in the frontier of these uh, ALSPs. And uh, you mentioned Elevate and Axiom, obviously, you know, us with, with some of the talent management that's going I guess if you have your crystal ball and people are asking you for an outlook on 2021 even, what are some of the other problem areas that you maybe see uh, ALSPs stepping into the breach to help their clients solve? You know, one of the things I hear more and more about is contract management. The uh, LIBOR standard in, uh, in banking is coming to an end and a number of ALSPs are, I'm told that they are very busy in helping clients update their contracts on a fashion that doesn't involve a ton of man hours and you can really put a lot of technology towards it. When you say put a lot of technology, assuming you're, you're talking about some of the AI and the things that could search unstructured data in that, is that? Exactly, you're capturing okay. it, Brian. Great. Dan, uh, we're gonna move to uh, a discussion on some of the points that you've made and we appreciate you joining us this week. Before we let you have your day back, we're going to move to our fun section. Uh, and so we like to do something we called our pet peeve of the week or pet peeves, because I usually do too. So uh, you can go first as our esteemed guest and tell us uh, what is, uh, what's bothering you this week. You know, we, we spend all our time at home, home these days. So uh, my pet peeve is going to take on a domestic nature. Uh, but uh, one of one of the members of my ha um, of my family had, does have a tendency to take things out of the refrigerator and either almost finish them off or completely finish them off, and then stick it right back in the refrigerator. So uh, this week we had a carton of milk with just a dollop of milk sitting in the fridge, and uh, it's taking up room for other things. I mean, I have better things to do than uh, than go through the fridge myself and be the one who pulls everything out and throws it out. Yeah, probably disappointing when you're trying to have that uh, oatmeal breakfast or cereal like I do, and there's not enough milk to go around. 
All right. Uh, John, do you want to tell us your pet peeve? Yeah, my, my pet peeve, and this is not an, a political statement. My pet peeve is people who purport to be wearing a mask, but actually don't have it covering either their mouth or their nose, or sometimes both. Um, and presumably, these are people who aren't anti-mask. They mean to be wearing a mask, but right. they're not really effectively preventing anything or from themselves or from me by wearing the mask the way they do. I'm not sure I understand it. Yeah, no, it's... Uh, it's it's bizarre or <laughs> have it pulled down enough so they can take a take a smoke <laughs> like it's like uh, come on uh, let, let help us out here a little bit uh so i will stick with my tradition and do two because i have to do one sports one we said we're going to talk sports and the masters is my favorite time of the year uh, obviously that's usually in april which is uh, around my birthday and i love to celebrate so i appreciate having the masters versus not having the masters at all and express gratitude because we have sports at a time where you know the higher priority for our country as john was just saying is dealing with covid safely there is just something different uh, about watching the masters and no roaring crowds so i kind of uh, was was missing the energy that the crowds could usually give the golfers and anyway hopefully that that will be back next year uh, being from California and coming out here uh, to to Washington, uh, people double park anywhere in the middle of the street, <laughs> on side streets, uh, it blocking active driveways. So it has become a, a source of great consternation for me that I can't seem to routinely enter and exit my garage or make it down the street without somebody being double parked. So those are my uh, those are my pet peeves for the week. Brian, John, are you jumping back in with a second one? Can, can I have a second one? I didn't know I could have a second no, one. No, of course. Uh, well, because <laughs> no, you brought go ahead, Dan. You, <laughs> well, Dan, go I, ahead. I just, you go first. I wanted to interject. Because now that Brian, I'm told, has become an Eagles fan, uh, you should spend some time in That's South it. Philadelphia where double parking is, it's really a, it's a national pastime down there. I've lived in D.C. Okay. And the, the, double, the way that people embrace and revel in double, double parking in South Philly <laughs> It's 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 just it's an art form. And I assume you just have to deal with it, or or you may be beaten up or something. So I may, maybe I shouldn't complain too much. <laughs> well, you certainly can't double park with a New York Giants sticker on the back of your car. That's for yeah, sure. That, that's right. Um, that's right. But what what I was my pet peeve, Brian, and it was um, now because you you brought up you're coming over from California and it's starting to get to be winter is the fact yeah, that you right. wear long johns, <laughs> a polar jacket, and gloves. That can't be your pet. When my, my accessories when can't be when your it's 62 degrees. <laughs> I have to maintain uh, the Bay Area has a constant temperature. We don't rotate by much, but yes, uh, the funny. long johns will come out. <laughs> anyway, Dan, uh, any last or parting words before, uh, before we let you go? No, it's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. We really appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time. Ladies and gentlemen, don't go away. Brian and I will be dissecting what Dan told us in just a moment. So you're stuck with us for 15 more highly intellectually engaging minutes. But first, one more thank you to Dan Packle for joining us. Dan is the business law reporter at ALM Media, and you can learn more about what he does at www.law.com backslash author backslash Dan dash Packle backslash. Okay, Brian, do you want to kick off our discussion?
Yeah. So, John, I thought that was a good conversation uh, with Dan kind of taking us through the evolution of ALSPs, uh, how clients thought about uh, adopting them and that sort of thing. And we're really interesting. Uh, and I'd love to come back and chat about it a little bit. Uh, talk about cost being a main driver, but then law firms kind of jumping in and trying to do their own. I'm curious as to as to the, the competitive elements there. But starting with e-discovery, kind of going to people like us and Axiom and others that are doing the talent management and now maybe moving on to this frontier of AI and other things. And I know you ask a follow-up question on diversity and inclusion. So maybe we talk about what the role uh, of that is. And so just to, just to kick it off, cause it did stand out in my mind is that clients were as, as usually the case, cost is kind of <laughs> cost is a driver. And so ALSPs popped up to help jump into the breach where the costs were too much. Uh, and now law firms are launching their own. Does that seem a little counterintuitive to you or what's the role for them in all of this? Well, I think it's, I, I can see why they want to do it because they see that there's a market that they're losing or might lose. But at the same time, I think they also have to be worried about cannibalizing their own, their own services. So there's pros and cons of offering it themselves. But I don't see in principle why if they do it well, it can't be done by them as a piece of what they offer. I just think it's a lot to manage for them. You know, what they're really in the business for is uh, the practice of law. And as they start getting more and more into technology and not the legal part of the ALSPs, but the, in other words, the you know practice of law, but on different things at a lower cost point, but more of the mechanical things, it, it may get very hard for them to start feeling they're competent in that area or that it's worth the cost to get into it. It'll yeah, be interesting to see where the market goes. Um, mm-hmm. I thought I thought what he was saying, Brian, about you know the clients driving the cost was, you know, precisely, and using the e-discovery as the as the frontier. That's very much what we've seen and why we formed in a lot of ways because I saw this happen to the litigation model mm-hmm. when discovery exploded, even before e-discovery exploded. But when it exploded, which was really with a huge document request being uh, put in, and it started with big cases with the government, DOJ-type antitrust investigations that got massive document disclosure. And then you had e-discovery, which made it even greater, mm-hmm. with a lot of judges not being sensitive, actually, to the massive amount of information they were requiring people to produce in response right. to a document <laughs> request, because they hadn't had experience with it that way, so they, they couldn't really touch it and feel it. When that cost got out of control, clients ultimately drew a line and said, we're taking that away from you as law firms. And there was tremendous resistance by law firms, which is, no, you can't do that. We need to have a continuous um, legal product. If we're not responsible for the discovery, then we we could make mistakes on the back end. And the clients ultimately said to them, tough, we're doing it. And they took it away. And it's not available really to anybody anymore. Law firms don't do first line, any kind of volume e-discovery that's done by somebody else. They don't even often do the second reviews anymore. Mm -hmm. The same thing is clearly going to happen with other aspects of what law firms provide by way of legal services. And I think 
the law firms that get in front of that and figure out, well, what's the functionality that is on a particular deal, transaction, litigation, et cetera, that can be outsourced to an alternative legal service provider. We can maintain a relationship so we don't lose ultimate uh, matter control over it, but we but we recognize that's not our sweet spot um, and someone else should be providing it. I think that kind of a combination is going to take off in various aspects of what law firms do on big deals. Yeah, no, I think it's a good point. And, and, and I kind of made some you know notes in the margin when Dan was talking. And I think you're saying things that, that, that fit that, that thesis too, starting with the discovery. Uh, it's a client business, right? And so if you start to lose control of the client, then, you know, you may worry about downstream and other matters and that sort of thing. And it's a, it's a point that I talk to, and I know you spend time talking to folks uh, in the market as well as, you know, are we friend, are we foe, are we kind of feast or foul kind of thing? Um, and, I, and I think that the answer kind of starts to spring out of e-discovery as an example, but as, as you, I think, correctly say, with some of the other things that are coming, whether that's talent management, whether that's the legal tech, whether it's going to be AI and, and those things where we do it in partnership, right? And so I think that the market is putting a premium on efficiency. Certainly that's being driven by the public companies. And so now we have an ecosystem where we can be a partner to the corporation and the law firm and all play nicely in the sandbox to, to in my mind. And it may take a while to kind of figure out perfectly but I think that there could be some real efficiencies. Uh, coming back to you, the, the question that comes to my mind, Dan talked about cost, obviously quality, uh, but predictability. That to me is, that's the uh, efficiency. And, you know, I wonder, you know, in your years of, uh, of practice, um, clients hate to be surprised by big bills, you know, maybe now more than ever. And, uh, you know, it feels to me like ALSPs and other new law providers help give the system some more of that uh, predictability and, and maybe take some cost out. Yeah, definitely. I, 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 as uh, Dan was saying, I, I think clients are as interested in predictability as they are in cost. Um, it's not that they want a predictable high bill. They, of course, want a predictable low bill. But if the bill's inevitably going to be high, they definitely want it to be predictable. Um, you know, they don't want surprise. When you think of it internally, the most embarrassing thing that probably can happen to someone in-house is when he or she has to go to his or her boss and say, the budget got blown by 200%. And it's very hard for lawyers to predict. Um, I remember... A lawyer saying on one case I was on, you know, we have about as much success predicting as a contractor has in doing a renovation to your kitchen, which is true. The contractor never gets that right unless you put them on a fixed contract. And then the problem is you might not have plumbing if you put them on a fixed contract because if the cost gets high, they're going to work to that budget. And they're going to work to that budget. <laughs> so so uh, you probably so want plumbing. So it's, it's not it's not much different, you know. Um, and and I think I think, and I'll be interested in your view on this, Brian. You know, if you look at it, obviously we're about trying to look at structural issues and structural changes. So let's take this structurally. If clients are demanding. Uh, lower cost, higher predictability, taking certain things away from law firms like e-discovery used to be and expecting them to be handled 
by someone else or more cheaply. Inevitably, law firms have to consider, well, how many junior associates do they need? Right. And because the functions that junior associates play at the price point that's being required for them is only so much, it's limited. Um, and I don't think we as an industry have come to grips with that. And then the law firms say, okay, if we start to squeeze down on the eye of the needle so that the incoming classes are smaller, clients do want senior associates. They do want partners. If anything, ironically, they want more partner time than junior associate time, which means you need higher numbers later. How do you get to those higher numbers of people if you've cut off the inflow? That's what I think law firms are going to have to grapple with as we go forward. What what do you think is happening out there? Yeah. And, you know, I don't obviously for the audience, I don't want to be too self-serving because that's, you know, that's a big part of a big part of our model, which is. Uh, I think just by the numbers, uh, regardless of who you work with, like right, legal innovators, any there's a lot of very good quality people out. Um, you've got to change the mix, right? Because if you're going to bring down the numbers to keep your clients happy, you you can't have the same amount. And as you point out, if you keep only folks that are making those really high rates, then you won't have enough time with a natural attrition when you get up to the mid and to the senior level. So I think some sense of augmenting and it's it's like stocks, right? Dollar cost averaging down, bringing the cost down at the lower level so that you get the necessary training uh, that you need to have so that as people are moving through uh, the pipeline. I think Dan said it, I wrote a note. He said, people, processes, and technology. I think we're going to have to leverage technology and that frankly will drive efficiencies and cut some folks um, out of the process. But what I also think is that as we look at data that's going to uh, determine our success, I think that we've got to be much more clear uh, about what is success and what are the metrics that we are tracking. One of those, that funnel that you're talking about, that's super important. But what are the other metrics that we should all keep our uh, our minds on? What I'm worried about from an operational perspective is that you don't want to solve one problem, you know, on the front end, let's just say, and have unintended consequences kind of in the middle. And when we have that metrics discussion, just, you know, sort of moving to diversity inclusion uh, for a minute, diversity, equity and inclusion. When I think about data, I think about a project that, you know, you and I did together and our measurement over what has been about a quarter of a century. And if we look at just the black demographic, for instance, of of people that are in in law uh, associates, it's been at 5% for 25 years. So how do we better use data? How do we how do we take this moment of social unrest and use some of the providers, some of the technology, some of the analysis to drive better results? So I'm as interested in that as I am, uh, you know, driving cost savings. Well, interestingly, I think there's so much packed into what you're saying. One is yeah. um, you talk to law firms, and not not uh, universally, but especially the high-end law firms are, you know, in the top of the AMLAW list, are saying, we're actually doing better in the incoming classes with diversity than we've ever done before. Right, right. That's, however, not translating into senior people and partners. So that's got to be analyzed. That's a fair point. That's got to be analyzed because uh, it used to be both the intake was small, the mid-levels were small, the seniors were de minimis, 
partners mm-hmm. were almost nil. So that's something that that I think we've got to, as a profession, dive into. But the other thing that Dan Dan talked about the pressure being placed by clients on the cost side, and that's why law yeah. firms are yeah, responding. Right. He also talked about because I asked him the question about pressure um, on the diversity side, and I think where we need to go next as a industry is seeing the pressure be specific to outcomes because all yeah. clients are pressuring right. law firms to do better and all law firms right. understand their clients want them to do better but it's not producing different results and right. life has gone on so mm-hmm. and it it's a difficult question how much can you engineer this for a law firm if you're an in-house legal department I would argue more than you have, um, yeah. and you have the market power to do it. But law firms and clients like to have a, a, a collegial relationship, so it's very difficult to mandate things to your law firms. So this is going to be a very interesting dynamic. Yeah, and I, and I, I guess I agree with that. I just think that there are interesting things that we can do. So you talk about a systemic perspective and rather than try to solve it all in this podcast, it'll just issue spot. And so one of them is that we've got to keep our eye on the ball sort of longer than a year, right? Like, so every time we have one of these issues, we sort of focus on it and then people, you know, drift back. So I think keeping ourselves as an industry, and this is no aspersions to anyone. Um, I think we've got to keep, uh, keep focused. And I guess, for me, as we as we wrap up, you know, the one thing that maybe we uh, we touched on, uh, and I think that that's the post COVID world, and I think that there is an opportunity there because as clients and even law firms have gotten more comfortable uh, with remote work, and shameless plug, uh, you know, check our previous podcast on uh, the future of work and what the environment will look like. But I think when we think about that, there may be even more of an opportunity for technology for new law and for ALSPs uh, to help keep the system connected and efficient uh, as people may just not be in buildings in the same, you know, to the same extent they were previously. Totally agree. Well, Brian and I want to thank you all for listening to The Law in Black and White. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find us at legal-innovators.com for even more insights. You can also subscribe to our podcast and follow Legal Innovators on social media to see what we're up to. And we look forward to talking to you next time. Stay safe in the interim.